Welcome, everyone, to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Bill Galston of Brookings, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is Tim Miller, Bulwark contributor former Republican political consultant and trenchant analyst. So glad to have you all. Um, First topic this week, uh, the U.S. has now endured about 93,500 deaths from coronavirus and uh, 39 million people have filed for unemployment insurance, according to Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve, we could soon be looking at Great Depression levels of contraction. But the big stories emanating from the White House this week concerned Michael Flynn's martyrdom and something called Obamagate. Um, This has dominated um, certainly right-wing media, but to to some significant degree, all of our lives. Um, Tim? You did a deep dive into Obamagate. Now, when the president was asked what crime Obama had committed during a press conference, he couldn't answer it. So, but Tim, you know the answer. So please enlighten us. (laughs) What is the crime? The the short answer is he committed no crime. Um, But I do know also the uh, longer answer, which is what is the crime that Trump's cronies are accusing him of? And, um, uh, without boring the listeners, they can you know go to the bulwark and read the long, gory details. But I'll, I'll, I'll shorten it to this way: there there are two elements to the crime. The crazier elements, um, which are pushed by those deep in the MAGA media, uh, is this idea that the Russia um, interference into our election in 2016 was a hoax. Uh, that in fact President Obama and the deep state and many international um, uh, intelligence agencies worked together to frame Russia as part of an attempt to uh, stop Donald Trump. Uh, instead, it was possibly the Ukraine or a DNC inside job um, that had released the emails. This is absurd in many different levels. Um, and if you want to explore the absurdity, I'm happy to. But um, there has come out of that a second, um, uh, you know, the uh, a more reasonable. Uh, I guess, conspiracy. This is conspiracy light, Obamagate light that's being pushed by, you know, people like Molly Hemingway, Federalists and Fox and and others in sort of the anti-anti-Trump cadre. And, and they focus on what happened after the election. And the case that they're making is essentially that um, uh, the Obama administration acted illegally in the transition. Um, they spied on the Trump campaign. Uh, they uh, worked with their deep state friends once again in a coup to stop Donald Trump from being able to transition into power peacefully. And, and in order to do this, they cite one thing that, that I think is potentially a fair criticism. And Eli Lake at Bloomberg has written on this, which is that, that uh, the FBI, uh, it seems like colored outside the lines a little bit in their investigation of Flynn. Um, but um, the conspiracists in Trump world expand that coloring outside the lines to include a, a much a much darker conspiracy where President Obama directed um, them to spy on Michael Flynn um, and entrap him 
Um, and and they, they based this theory on a Susan Rice email that I wrote on yesterday, which, which actually explicitly says the opposite of the case that they're trying to make. So it's a convoluted theory. Um, of course, uh, Donald Trump doesn't obviously even follow the details of it himself. He doesn't care. Um, but um, what he's focused on is the is the only thing he's good at, which is the PR element of it. And, and I think that he has worked with Richard Grinnell in ways that are very disturbing um, to dribble out little pieces of information to try to keep this this fake scandal fresh. And, and I think that is really the real scandal that we're looking at, which is President Trump fab- using the director of national intelligence to fabricate um, uh, a scandal. And I think that the timing, uh, the last thing I'll say is the timing with the, with the official confirmation of Ratcliffe today um, uh, is relevant here. And I think that Trump knew he had a political operative and Grinnell is an acting DNI and could, and could um, you know, perpetrate this fraud uh, using him. Linda, um, the, um, you can certainly make an argument that, um, that Michael Flynn uh, got a raw deal, that uh, because he was associated with the Trump campaign, he was questioned by the FBI. That would never have happened if he hadn't been Trump's designee. Um, and uh, most people don't get sentenced to uh, to jail time for crimes like this, and so. But um, do you worry that um, the appearance here is that when you're the president's friend, the rules of justice don't apply to you? I think so. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, Michael Flynn um, is no hero. This is a man who was taking money from the Turkish government during the transition, who published, I think it was on Inauguration Day, uh, an article arguing for uh, the United States turning over a cleric who the Turkish president thought had been behind an attempted coup, uh, a cleric whose last name is Gullen. Uh, and he um, he's not somebody that I think has handled well uh, his post-government um, service. I mean, he was getting awards from Vladimir Putin. He's, you know, being a consultant to some I think, uh, uh, disreputable um, causes. And so uh, how you turn this guy into a hero, I don't know. Did the FBI misstep uh, in some of its investigation on the whole uh, Russia uh, story? Yes, they did. I mean, we have an inspector general's report that suggested that some people were treated badly. Uh, and you know, that's, um, that's deplorable. That's too bad. And we need to clean that up, but there's no question that, uh, the, uh, Michael Flynn himself was not a good guy. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's not acting appropriately and how you could be about, you know, to step into the top security position in the White House and not recognize that when you're on the phone with the ambassador to Russia, you are being listened to. I mean, you know, going back way before I ever even joined the Reagan administrations, I once sent a staffer over to pick up a 
photograph from the Russian embassy uh, of the Sputnik launch uh, for a magazine I was editing. And this young woman's husband was applying for a job at the State Department and it almost withheld his uh, his job. He almost didn't get clearance because she'd gone over and picked up an envelope. And when you deal with an adversary government, you have to know that you are being watched. And so, you know, I, I, I just can't cry any crocodile tears for uh, Mr. Flynn. Well, um, Bill Galston, um, this is a very, very, this Obamagate is very sophisticated because clearly Barack Obama managed to um, stand at Michael Flynn's elbow and tell him to lie to the FBI. Um, <laughs> that is pretty darn sophisticated. <laughs> uh, look, uh, <laughs> where where to begin? Uh, I'll just I'll just make two points. Uh, point one, uh, as I think you said, uh, one good thing has come out of this ruckus, uh, and that is that some real civil civil liberties questions. Uh, in the FISA process have come to light. Uh, it is it is clear that uh, that people were being spied on without an adequate adequate legal predicate. Uh, I've never met Carter Page, but I have waded my way through a lot of his material, and I think somebody owes him a big apology. Uh, and if this leads if this leads to much stricter standards for surveillance, I think that will be all to the good. Point number two, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, uh, this is a classic inside the Beltway story <laughs> at a time when the country is facing huge problems. Uh, it should be clear to everybody that this is a diversionary maneuver on the part of uh, the president and those around him. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is it's not working. In other circumstances, it might, but not now. Um, so it is obviously um, a diversion, and it is an inside the Beltway story. That's true. Um, nevertheless, it is. It is being discussed in the right-wing echo chamber, and therefore I do think it's important to stress a couple of facts. Um, um, and then I'll come to you, Damon, on this. Um, but the, the facts are these. Um, there were abuses of the FISA system. That needs to be fixed. That needs to be corrected. And uh, we always have to keep our cops, and that includes the FBI, on a short leash. Um because abuses of power are, you know, should be taken seriously. Fine. But the idea that there was some kind of, you know, mass conspiracy to um, damage Trump and, and, uh, and, and, and help Hillary is just belied by the obvious facts. The FBI announced it was reopening an investigation into Hillary Clinton right before the election, damaging her perhaps fatally. Um, they never announced publicly that they had an open investigation into 
Trump's contacts with the Russians or the campaign's contact with the Russians. That was never made public. So if this was a conspiracy, it was it backfired or it was done in the worst possible way because it benefited Trump and hurt Clinton. Um, and then just um, a few other quick things. Um, you know, the, the the idea that there was, I, I heard um, some Trump defenders saying it was preposterous to think that there would ever have been any kind of untoward relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia. And I just, that's not right. I mean, the fact is he did hire, well, he was very close to, um, Roger Stone, who did have contact with WikiLeaks that was involved in leaking the emails that were damaging. He did hire as his campaign chairman, somebody who was beholden to Russian oligarchs. That would have been Paul Manafort. Um, he, they, they did have a meeting in Trump Tower where they were welcoming Russian information or, or dirt on, on Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, Michael Cohn did lie to Congress about uh, the the Trump Tower Moscow project for that went on almost throughout the entire campaign year of 2016, and Trump lied about it repeatedly, and so did uh, Cohen under oath, which is why he's in jail. Actually, he was just released today uh, because of coronavirus for home confinement. But in any event, um, it, those things raised eyebrows, and and it, it it is not crazy to have been worried. I was worried. Um, and, uh, and I wasn't getting classified information. So anyway, um, just thought I, I'd- I, I agree with all of that, Mona. I guess my point is, you know, I suppose I could put it in the form of a headline newsflash right wing echo chamber, impervious to facts, comma, prone to conspiracies. This is a revelation. <laughs> what do we, you know, what are we learning from this other that some, other than that some things don't change. Yeah, but, uh, and- but let me let me bring Damon in here because I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge a little bit the idea that uh, that it's irrelevant and it's a, just an inside the Beltway story because, for example, Trump is calling Damon. I'd like to hear you on this. Trump is calling on the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham to um, call Barack Obama to testify about this supposed conspiracy. And um, he's Which Graham uh, asking, has said he won't do. Yes, that's true. But he's also said to the, to the majority this time he said he won't do it. Who knows? Um, he, he's pushed the majority leader, Mitch McConnell to, uh, pursue investigations of people who investigated him, um, and, uh, and so on. So, you know, the, um, Republican party, uh, it could find itself, uh, once again, covering for this kind of thing, Damon. Yeah, it could. I mean, I, I find, I, I do feel a bit of, uh, contempt <laughs> of that we are, rightly forced to talk about this. And it shows the way that when Trump injects this poison into the body politic, we have no choice but to respond because it's out there and he's the president. And when the president says something, it uh, it ricochets around uh, the media in a way that you can't avoid. But it does show his capacity to, uh, you know, you know, this kind of internet meme about, you know, not wanting to talk about something and then you yell squirrel and everyone looks at the squirrel and like, like that's, it's sort of the way he does politics is he just sort of throws some garbage out there and points to it and names it 
a hashtag Obamagate. And suddenly we're all talking about Obamagate when this isn't really anything that exists apart from a kind of BS narrative that the president and his minions are pushing in the media. Now, I, I personally, if this does continue, which I guess it will, I, I actually wouldn't mind if Lindsey Graham called Obama and Susan Rice and any and any and everybody else from the Obama administration to testify in the Senate about this matter, because that would give them each an opportunity to explain, one, that much of what you've heard about Russia's attempt to interfere in the election was absolutely true. We knew it before the election. That is why we, the Obama administration, were on guard along with the FBI in the transition about not really being sure what might be going on between the Trump administration and Russian operatives. And 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 it, they can concede the point that Bill made, which is quite valid, and that Eli Lake has made in his voluminous writings on the subject of uh, Michael Flynn, that yes, the FISA courts probably went too far in much of this, and there are abuses of power that need to be reined in. But by the same token, this was a real thing. There were reasons to be suspicious about ties between the incoming Trump administration and Russia. And the Obama administration knew about it before the election and said nothing, in part because Mitch McConnell didn't want him to and threatened to make it a political issue that would hurt the Democrats too. So uh, I don't really see how on this issue, uh, bringing more of the facts out into the light of day are going to help the Republicans because the only, in the end, the only people who are going to be uh, persuaded to to stick with their own crazy line on it are those who are impervious to the facts in the first place. Hey, hey, Tim, it sounds like Damon is saying that facts matter. I don't know. You know, I, I read Tim Miller and um, and I read your analysis of the uh, Susan Rice, you know, memo being declassified. And, um, you know, it, it's all the right wing media trumpeted this for the exact opposite of what it plainly said. Right. Uh Yes, that's true. And, and, and I think that this is where maybe I, I slightly disagree with Damon on the strategic side of this, on the political side, which is, yes, uh, you know, I get that the Trump strategy is to call squirrel and to distract from his other failures. But, you know, I, we learned in 2016 that this stuff has a way of sinking in. And I think that we learned in 2019, I, I think the Biden campaign really did a poor job of getting the facts out and responding to the, you know, fake Burisma scandal, which is another thing that I, I wrote about on the bulwark. And and I think even Biden supporters still don't have a good talking points and framework for why that's so phony. And, and you know, here we are six months later. And so looking at an election year, um, uh, you know, I, I sort of disagree with the theory that some espouse. I don't want to put words in Damon's mouth that, that, that you know, if you kind of wrestle with a pig, you're both going to get muddy. I, I think that, you know, that's just, we're living in a muddy time um, politically. And I think that it's important that, that, that the campaign aggressively push back and that allies aggressively push back. And so, yeah, I mean, with regards to Obamagate, look, you're not going to win over the readers of Gateway Pundit, um, you know, and we're not going to win over many of the viewers of Fox for that matter. But, mm -hmm. but I think that creating a clear frame about what the Susan Rice email was and wasn't, 
um, you know, as, as I tried to do, you know, writing about, you know, the fact that in the email, she clearly states that Obama says, do not act out of the ordinary unless we get more information about Flynn that, that, that leads us to believe that he's, you know, um, sharing into, um, you know, sharing classified intelligence. Um, you know, it was, it was, as multiple people have said, totally reasonable for them to have a briefing and discussion about how to handle this crazy, un, crazy unprecedented situation following the attack on our elections. So, um, no, you're not going to win everybody over with the facts, but um, thinking about this in electoral context, it's important to have an easy pushback and an easy understanding of why this is wrong and to use Trump's strategy against him, by the way. Like this, the fact that he's leaking these things is a scandal. And it should be treated as such. Um, and so, um, you know, J- Trump isn't the only one that can use the tactic of, of you know, muddying the waters by, by discussing the other side's scandals. Um, I, you know, the, the Biden campaign and the left can do that as well, and I think should. And we'll be on stronger ground in doing so, for that matter. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to, I want to talk a little bit more about the Biden campaign um, in a minute. But first, I want to turn to um, the administration's, uh, the government in general, their response to um, the coronavirus, um, which has become a little bit of a dark comedy, not just a little. Um, It isn't just the hydroxychloroquine business, but um, we have seen. News, the CDC was in the news in a number of ways this week. Um, uh, Bill, um, the the CDC was in the news because, first, because it seemed that the um, White House was was feuding with the CDC and sidelining the CDC because he the president didn't like what Redfield said uh, in a press conference where he denied that he had been misquoted by the Washington Post. And so then there were stories that uh, the CDC had been just sidelined in favor of other people in the White House who were going to who were going to um, take the lead on the government's response to this to this pandemic. Um, Today, there is something equally, maybe more upsetting story in The Atlantic that um, the CDC has been screwing up uh, the um, mixing of t- two different kinds of tests, the, uh, the, the, the antibody tests and the, and the virus tests, and reporting them as the same thing, which is going to create havoc with the decisions that states are now having to make about how to open up, when to open up, where the virus is trending, and so forth. Well, the CDC used to be the most reliable voice on these issues, not only here at home, but around the world. Uh, I spent a certain amount of time uh, talking with foreign diplomats, uh, and they all in tones of sadness, are saying roughly the same thing about the CDC, uh, namely that it has lost the gold standard reputation that it enjoyed for decades. And the the recitation of facts you just put on the table uh, is part of the reason why. Uh, Some of this has to do with the fact that uh, Mr. Redfield is not the right man for the job. Uh, And I think most people know it. and apparently, you know, Anthony Fauci uh, holds him in minimum high regard. Uh, and secondly, that when you have 
a White House that is allergic to inconvenient facts, uh, then agencies up to and including the Department of Defense <laughs> will adjust to that in all sorts of counterproductive ways. And I'm sure some of that has gone on at the CDC. And finally, they put themselves way behind the eight ball when they uh, allowed you know, a poorly manufactured test to be produced under their direction, to be publicly distributed and costing us at least a month before we had something more reliable available for distribution. Uh, the, the, the CDC has, has really undermined itself as what it should be, namely, namely the lead voice, uh, and in my opinion, uh, once the White House prevented them from coming out with their detailed getting back to work instructions, I think they should have made it public anyway. Linda, I don't want to. I don't want to be a you know complete depress, depressing uh, host here, but. Um, but this this thing about the CDC first they're screwing up the initial test kits and uh, and and now this um, I, I have to say I find this so depressing when you combine it with the fact that we elected a circus clown as president of the United States and and a good forty four percent of the population or forty three percent of the population is still happy with that um, you know and and you you think. Uh, it, it's beginning to sound like we are we are really we're 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 beginning to slide as a nation. Okay, I mean, if we can't get these things right anymore, these these highly formerly highly respected experts and agencies that uh, used to be, as Bill says, the gold standard, are now turning out to be complete screw ups. Where people are, you know, slapping their heads and saying, "My." God, how can you possibly be confusing antibody tests with virus tests? I, you know, don't you worry about what that says about us? Yeah, I do. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it does. And, and I hate to buy into this because this has been the left's uh, anthem for generation now that America is in decline. But I think America is in showing some signs of decline. I mean, we've had, you know, I, I would point to the election of 2016 as a sign of something really wrong in the body politic. Um, and the fact that you have a president who is so incompetent, I mean, this administration's level of competence is so shocking to me. As somebody who's been around a long time, I mean, I, you know, go back to uh, the Nixon administration uh, in terms of, you know, having been around and been involved politically. And one thing that was always clear to me, even when I used to be more liberal than I am now, is that one thing you could usually count on Republicans was that they had good, competent appointees. You may not always have agreed with them. Back when I was a liberal, I didn't. Uh, but they were professional. They came from the highest ranks of their professions. Most of them gave up better paying jobs in order to accept political appointments in the administration. What we're seeing in the Trump administration is the dregs. 
I mean, they're not people who are at the top of their game in any of the positions. And of course, many of the positions that the president uh, has the right to fill, he hasn't even filled. I mean, there are all these open jobs or there are jobs where somebody is in an acting capacity. And I think a lot of people have been very concerned about Dr. Redfield. He has not come across well in the briefings in the way that uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Um, Burks have. And I think the the missteps early on clearly led uh, to tremendous problems in our response. But this latest error is so monumental. I mean, to take two tests, ones that shows whether you might ever have been exposed to the disease and another that shows that you have the disease and to conflate these two and to present the data as one data source is it's just astounding. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, but I, you know, I mean, I think anybody with who's been through high school biology should be able to understand how wrong this is. So yeah, I think it does show us in decline. And the question is, can we ever get out of it? I can tell you one thing, if we have another four years of Donald Trump, we will not come out of it. I do not believe, I think we will be an empire that um, is in its waning days. Okay, Damon, I'm turning to you to um, to cheer hey, us up. Uh, well, can I just chime in before Damon talks? I'm the darkest. I thought I was the darkest person that I knew about the state of affairs, <laughs> and Linda just like is running circles around me right now. So anyway, maybe Damon. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not going to be the one to cheer you up on this topic. I've been writing about this for a, a while, and. Um, you know, I thought for a, quite a while that the U.S. was merely in relative de- relative decline vis-a-vis rising powers, which I think was pretty indisputable in the sense that, uh, you know, we had the unipolar moment, if we use that parlance from Charles Krauthammer uh, in some things that he wrote uh, early on at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and then we've, you know, had the rise of China, the BRICS countries, in general. Uh, And so, you know, our status in relation to those rising powers shows that, you know, our preeminence is not as great as it once was. But um, especially since 2016, I think you can see that we may very well be at the beginning of a, a long period of absolute decline uh, and uh, as part of that, I'll come back to this at the end with my recommendation for a read uh, to the listeners. But, uh, you know, the, the, the trajectory that we're on in a confrontation potentially with China uh, has me really kind of shaken because I just don't see that going very well on any front. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and part of that has to do with the, you know, the incompetence that everyone has been mentioning so far in the last few minutes. And this extends, I'm afraid, to, you know, military concerns. You know, the fact that we've been mucking about in all of these countries around the greater Middle East for the better part of two decades, can't really win, can't really pull out. Uh, our ships have a distressing tendency to crash into each other in peacetime in the Pacific, um, 
this is not uh, this is not uh, what you expect to see from a, a power that really hopes to maintain its preeminence. Okay, all right. I can see that this job has now fallen to me. I have to be the one. Um, <laughs> Never come to me for optimism. <laughs> I have to be the one to, to, to give a different perspective. So here, I'll, here's my attempt. Um, the reason we all know about the unbelievable foobar, as that uh, line goes, uh, regarding um, regarding the CDC is that we still have, thank God, a very active and functioning free press, which is something they do not have in China and many other countries. And that is a source of strength. We can see our flaws and we can at least attempt to correct them. In China, they are covered up, they are smothered, and they have many, many, many problems. Um, and uh, yes, they have a lot of strengths as well. Uh, but, uh, but, but they, but their, their system is not one that conduces to, um, human flourishing in, in many respects. And, and part of the reason is that they are so repressive. So, um, so there is, so there is that we do have a tendency in this country to, um, to make big mistakes and then, and then bounce back from them. I'm not saying it's guaranteed by any stretch. Um, but this, this will be, this is a huge shock and it may be enough to, um, to shake people out of complacency and, uh, into some sense of urgency about addressing, uh, about addressing our, um, our problems. I don't know. We will see. But um, but that's my stab at uh, a tiny bit of optimism. Now, uh, let's let's talk a little further though about uh, the incompetence because one of the other things that happened this week is that um, the World Health Organization, uh, and this is a related point. So the World Health Organization invited both President Xi of China and Donald Trump to come and address them. Xi said yes. Trump said no, sent a letter, and also and also threatened to cut off U.S. funding for the WHO, which is one of Trump's go-to methods. He either imposes a tariff, he cuts off funding, he builds walls, he shuts down travel. Those are the things that he that's those are his preferred actions. But just to to, to increase our national humiliation. The letter that he sent explaining to the World Health Organization why he was thinking of cutting off all funding was full of errors. And The Lancet, the respected British medical journal, uh, he quoted The Lancet in the letter and The Lancet had to issue a correction saying that is false. That is factually incorrect. Um, so, Tim, uh, you can you either the, talk about- You mean the Trump administration lied, Mona? <laughs> Surprising <laughs> in an official letter. Yeah, let's leave that there. I, 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 let's talk about the IGs because um, because this week um, we had uh, another firing. Uh, this is the fifth IG that has been fired in six weeks. Um, this was the IG for the State Department, Steve Linick, and it follows the dismissal of IGs from HHS, Transportation, the Intelligence Community, the Defense Department. Um, and so forth. So, um, so Tim, uh, this is not unprecedented. Okay. When Reagan came into office, he fired all of the inspectors general. 
Um, but there had only been inspectors general for a brief time then. The law had only passed, I think, two years before. The whole thing was new. He thought that those were all people that he could just get rid of and bring in his team. When he found out that that wasn't the case, that they were supposed to be more independent, he rehired most of them. Um, so, and Obama fired one and he got pushed back and never did it again. Um, but now we've got the Trump method is, um, I'm going to fire anybody who I think might uncover wrongdoing and the Republican party, except for a few voices, is fine with that. One voice really knit, uh, you know, there's some tacit, Susan Collins expressed some tacit concerns that then Grassley did as well, but I think Grassley feels backed into a corner because he's been such an advocate for IGs. Um, it's yeah. shocking, you know, and, and, and it's, it sounds like um, they have already replaced the State Department IG, which is in direct conflict with a law that was passed by, by a lot of the sitting Republican senators, by the way, um, uh, that, uh, uh, inf- that created a 30-day you know, waiting period and congressional review anytime an IG is dismissed, making sure, you know, that it, that it was for credible reasons. Uh, and, and so the Trump administration has blown right through that. And, and it would really just take four Republican senators to, um, you know, put a halt to that and, and, you know, force this to go in front of Congress. And, you know, obviously Mitch McConnell's not going to do that. And, and, you know, there's not been any sort of, you know, remember the old gangs of eight that we used to have? There's been no oh, yeah. accountability gang of eight. And I've been saying this for a while, you know, if Romney only needs to get three other, three other senators with them to, to, to wield a lot of oversight control, not on pot, you know, the response to this from the right is always, well, you know, uh, we don't, they agree on policy, you know, the Ben Sasses and the Mike Lees of the world agree on the policies, but I'm not talking about on policy. I'm at, we're asking them to overthrow McConnell. We're talking about on, on oversight of situations like IGs of times where, where the president has stepped over the line on, um, you know, funding decisions like he did on, the, you know, unilaterally uh, trans, uh, moving funding from uh, defense department to, to the wall. Uh, you know, things of this nature. And so, uh, you know, there just is no, no, no courage. And it's only a small number of people that would be required to, to make an impact. And, and I just want to, we you glossed over the WHO, but I do want to say one thing. There's this um, shift to nationalism among the party, where, you know, it's like, you have to say China is bad, and WHO is bad, and we should be out of it. Um, to pass this litmus test. And, and, and on the right, there needs to be room to be able to say, yes, China is bad. Yes, the WHO screwed up. But at the same time, the United States that, that has created a successful global order ha- has done so by engaging. And, and so, you know, by letting Xi, you know, completely run roughshod over the WHO, that's not solving the problem that got us into this. It's well, taking exactly. more control over these international institutions exactly. and hurting ourselves more. It's really yeah, it's forfeiting our our influence in the world. I mean, he should have accepted well a, a, a competent president with with similar complaints about the WHO would have accepted the invitation, um, made some pointed criticisms of the WHO, but also praised its good work around the world and maintained American guidance and influence. Um, this is the worst possible way to deal with it because it, it is seeding the ground to China uh, and the world leadership uh, to China. It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely all. Now, now, Bill, I, in light of this whole IG thing, I, I just, 
one of the things that is just remarkable to me, uh, and we've talked about this before, I, I think, or talked to, you know about related matters on this podcast, but you know, Bill Barr and and our guest last week, Adam White, said he thinks he's sincere, and you know maybe he is. Um, but Bill Barr genuinely believes that the president needs more power. The president doesn't have enough power and that uh, we need to remedy certain things to make sure that we, we limit Congress's power. It is just astonishing. Um, the, uh, the Congress is doing absolutely nothing. And, and uh, the, the notion that right now what we need to do is strengthen the executive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Once again, <laughs> where do I begin? Uh, look, there was a case for strengthening the deck the the presidency decades ago, uh, and I remember an AEI symposium that led to an edited book with the title, I believe, "The Fettered Presidency." Uh, whatever the truth or falsity of that may have been uh, three or four decades ago, it's you know it's patently contrary to all the observable facts today. Uh, you know, Congress has virtually disappeared as an independent uh, branch of the federal government, uh, exactly the reverse of what James Madison thought was going to happen. So let's go back to this particular case. The president doesn't have too little, too little power with regard to the IGs. The president has too much power. And uh, we relied on informal norms to protect IGs for a very long time. Uh, when, Linda, when Linda said, as soon as Reagan discovered that the IGs were supposed to be independent, he rehired most of them. You can't imagine Donald Trump being told that they were supposed to be independent and rehiring them. Au contraire. That's the reason for firing them. So what we need is a new law. That you know, you know, that makes the IGs invulnerable to you know to presidential removal, you know, absent good cause and with a much more elaborate process. Now, this raises all sorts of interesting constitutional questions, but isn't it obvious that the ability of a renegade president to fire IGs at will? is the problem that needs to be solved. Uh, and just wringing our hands about it and wishing that Trump were a better person isn't going to do the trick. This is part of a long list of very unpleasant lessons that we've learned about the limits of the current law of the United States in the face of a president who has no regard for the rule of law. And we need to act specifically and firmly as soon as the government is in the kinds of hands that would be willing and able to act. I don't want Joe Biden to have the ability to remove IGs like this any more than I want Donald Trump or any other president to. It ought not to be possible as a matter of law to do so. So that's a great segue to talk about Joe Biden. Um, let, me, let me just begin by asking uh, Tim whether he thinks, whether you think, Tim, that a Biden administration, let's imagine that he wins and let's imagine that he gets a Democratic Senate, 
Can you imagine them passing laws saying that the president will not be able to remove IGs except for good cause, you know, for malfeasance or corruption or some such thing, um, and and making other reforms that would limit the executive, um, you know, the scope of the executive? Um, not that optimistic <laughs> about that. Um, yeah. I, I think I think that there could be a you know kind of wave of some democratic reforms. Um, I, you know, the IG example is one that I, I, I think that Biden could could get on board with. He is definitely an institutionalist, the, uh, and 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 so I, I I could see some some reforms that that maybe you know put some boundaries around the executive, um, making it through in a Biden administration. The problem is that none of those are going to include policy reforms. Uh, you know, he is going to ha- be under in, extreme pressure from his left um, to. Uh, uh, try to live up to the absolutely bonkers policy uh, um, priorities that were being thrown around in the Democratic primary and promises more than priorities um, by by many of the you know candidates he was on the stage with um, that, that felt like he was reluctantly going along with in, in certain cases. So um, you know, and that, none of those are going to be able to happen. You know, even if they retake the Senate by what one or two, what's the most the Democrats could possibly get up to 52, 53 senators, uh, you know, and they're not going to get many Republicans on board for any of this. So um, it's going to require, you know, more and more, um, you know, power, you know, being centralized from a policy perspective in the in the presidency. And so um, uh, hopefully there will be a sense that just because of what we just went through, um, there'll have to be some. Um, ethics reforms, but, uh, but boy, I'm not too optimistic about a a broad, um, lessening of power from the executive. So one of the things people are talking about this week is who should Biden pick as his VP. There's always a huge amount of speculation in the press and, and argument about the VP pick. And it's actually, it makes very little difference to the outcome of elections. If you believe um, exit polls, but um, but anyway, it does get a lot of attention, and in this case, um, it's more important than usual because Biden is seventy seven, um, and so it's possible. I mean, obviously, you wish everybody the best, but it is possible that whoever he picks would actually become president in his first term. That could happen. Could happen anybody, but you make you understand anyway. Um, and and one of the people that is is said to be well. I mean, Stacey Abrams is making is campaigning hard. So, Damon, um, first of all, um, do you have a do you have a favorite, and um, what do you think of this new tendency to actively campaign to be chosen as VP? Well, I see Elizabeth Warren doing some of that. I think today she came out and tried to distance herself from support for Medicare for All, showing that she definitely is lobbying hard. Um, some on the left were very uh, irked today by this. Um, uh, but uh, what I'm seeing from Stacey Abrams is in a whole different category. And, and it's uh, it, there's a collaboration going on between her and some of the media. The Washington Post had a truly... Oh, stupefying yes. profile of her last weekend where she was dressed as a superhero and with a cape with a cape <laughs> it was truly bizarre I, I mean i i i'm definitely not in the pro stacy abrams camp I, I mean i think she's wildly underqualified and 
really. Uh, I, I find the, the enthusiasm around here, her such as it is, is more an expression of the differences between uh, Democrats and Republicans. And that uh, I think Ramesh Panuru, when he was on the podcast a few months ago, made a point along these lines. Like, what is it about the Democrats that makes them love a loser? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean that to be mean to Stacey Abrams, but, you know, after the Beto phenomenon where he lost yeah. the Senate race to Ted Cruz and now Stacey Abrams loses an election for governor of Georgia and has the highest office she's held as a statewide representative uh, in Georgia. And now she thinks she's somehow going to get the vice presidency. I think that's just more amusing than anything else. I mean, my my view of it and preferences are pretty much what you would expect from a mainstream guy like myself. I mean, uh, I would be very happy with Klobuchar. I think uh, probably uh, uh, Kamala Harris has more, uh, you know, it uh, checks more Democratic Party identity politics boxes. So probably is in the lead above Klobuchar a little bit. Um, I don't really see what Elizabeth Warren would get him in any capacity. She's obviously not very uh, popular in her home state. Her home state's going to go for the Democrat regardless. She isn't particularly liked by uh, Bernie Sanders fans. She's too far left for moderates. Uh, so I, I don't know what she gets him at all. Um, and other than that, I don't know. I mean, there are certain like black sheep wild cards uh, he could pick uh, in various places around the country, but I don't sense uh, a lot of uh, kind of bold moves coming out of the Biden camp. So I, I'm actually at the moment thinking that's rather unlikely. So I guess I put my chips down on Harris at the moment as most likely. Um, one of the things, Linda, that um, distresses me about Kamala Harris uh, and acknowledging that you know, she's she's uh, attractive and, and smart and all that. Um, and yeah, she checks a lot of boxes. Um, but she was the one candidate uh, or one of the worst among the Democrats who were in the primaries um, in terms of not learning the right lessons about the Trump experience. She kept talking about how she was going to do things by executive order not through the legislative process. Um, and, uh, and it sounded often as if she were running for empress, um, not, not president. And, um, she seemed to have learned all the wrong lessons, but, uh, but anyway, do you have a, um, do you have a candidate that you think would, would do him good? Well, I have a strategy that I think would do him good. And it's a very old fashioned strategy. And that is that you take a look at the map and you look at states that you must win, and you pick a vice president that you think can give you an edge in a state that you might otherwise uh, have some problems in. And so, you know, we've got uh, Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin would fall into that category. Um, I think you could argue that Amy Klobuchar um, might give him an advantage. Um, you know, she is Midwestern, and that might help. Um, you know, you might, uh, it would eliminate uh, Kamala Harris, it would eliminate uh, Senator Warren, it would eliminate certain people, certainly uh, somebody like Stacey Abrams. Um, the likelihood of his winning, winning Alabama, I think, is very minimal. And uh, she didn't win Alabama. 
Alabama. So, you know. uh, Georgia. I'm sorry, Georgia, Georgia. She didn't win Georgia. Uh, so, you know, that I think would be uh, a mistake on all sorts of grounds. But instead of looking at this in uh, strictly political terms, the way campaigns have done in the past, it's more about identity politics. And I think this is the biggest problem the Democratic Party has, is you've got to get away from this. You've got to treat this like one country, one nation. You've got to be able to make an appeal. Uh, he's already boxed himself in by insisting that it only be a woman that he can pick from. But, you know, that the, my my advice to him would be take a look at who is going to give you the most political advantage. You've got to win certain. Now, Michigan, um, he's you know got a governor there. That would be a very controversial pick because uh, Governor Whitmer has made um, some enemies by her very detailed lockdown that you know kept people from buying paint and flowers at Home Depot um, or going to their second homes in the same state. That sort of thing, but. You know, I wish we could get back to plain politics apart from uh, these exquisite choices that we make based on whether somebody checks us all the right identity boxes. Yeah. Well, of course, the um, the Biden campaign never takes a step without consulting me. So I would <laughs> <laughs> I would I would urge them not to go for some, you know, surprise, you know, wonderful identity politics pick like Catherine Cortez Masto or um, Michelle Grisham, both of whom are Hispanic governors. Um, but, you know, those are, or Val Demings. I mean, they all may be great, but none of them has been vetted. None of them, I mean, and I really do think you risk the Sarah Palin problem where, you know, you've picked somebody for sort of surface attributes and then they, they cannot, they wilt under the harsh glare of a national campaign. And uh, I think that the, the, basically you just don't want to make a mistake. I don't think the vice president can help him. I really don't. I mean, I think most of the, you know, most of the evidence that I've seen suggests vice presidents don't even carry their own states. Um, so I don't really think he can do it that way. I think he just needs to pick somebody safe, non-threatening, just like he is. I mean, the reason that he's leading is that he is seen as non-threatening and acceptable by many voters who might have had trouble, um, you know, with with an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. And uh, I think he doubles down on that. You know, pick pick uh, Klobuchar or or someone like that, and uh, and or or maybe Tammy Baldwin. Is she the one who served and she's she she um, had a baby while she was a senator? Anyway, no, no you're um, Mona. This was she. The person you're thinking of is my contrarian kind of trolley pick, uh, which is uh, Tammy Duckworth. Duckworth, Duckworth. Yes, uh, yes. And, uh, she, uh, you know, sir, she's not only cool. served, yeah, served and um, and and lost her legs in service. Right. I do feel like there's something that is really delicious just about the fact that Donald Trump could not survive five months without making fun of her. Um, and like there's just, I don't know. I know that's not the real reason to pick a vice president, uh, but uh, it really, uh, it really is a tempting. If I, yeah, that, if I was on the Biden campaign, it would be a tempting prospect. That is tempting. Say. Look, if he, if he has really good people who are great at vetting and, and can be sure there are no unpleasant surprises there, that is, I have to admit that it is a tempting prospect. Um 
All right. Let, let's um, let's just talk a little bit about the polls. Um, the um, the spread goes anywhere in terms of the most recent polling, anywhere from Biden plus three, which is nothing because it's within the margin of error, to Biden plus eleven, which is the Quinnipiac, a respected poll. Um, but a lot of them are in the five point range, um, and uh, Trump is below. Uh, below 45% every, almost in all of these. Um, and uh, Nate Silver says that since the Second World War, presidents with approval at 49 or above win re-election and those with approval of 48 or below lose re-election. Um, Bill, is, uh, do you think the old rules apply or is it just a completely different situation for a lot of reasons this year? I think it's a completely different situation for a lot of reasons this year. Okay. <laughs> throw, your quote, right. throw your quote back at you. Political science generalizations are true until they're false. Yeah, uh, and I think we've we've all we've all learned that the hard way. Uh, I you know I took a deep dive yesterday into the Quinnipiac poll, and I actually talked with the leader of the Quinnipiac poll. Uh, because I was I was scratching my head. Plus eleven is an astounding result. How did it happen? Well, it turns out that Quinnipiac's sample had a ten point party identification edge for Democrats. Huh. Now Democrats may have a modest edge in party identification, but it's not ten points. Trust me. No. Uh, and so. I think I think when you correct for more reasonable party ID numbers and you know, read you know, redo the balance of the balancing of the sample with that in mind, you're going to end up with something pretty close to the center of gravity of current polling, which is in the five to six per, six point range. Uh, and uh, whether or not the 48% approval rating is, is a benchmark anymore, I can't tell you. But what I do, what I can tell you is that a very important piece was published today uh, by Rui Teixeira and John Halpin uh, based on a bipartisan, you know, voter, you know, voters, ongoing voter study uh, and it showed that of the people who voted for Trump in 2016, fully 9% intend to cast their ballots for Joe Biden. Now, if that number is anything like correct, Trump can't win. Right. Because he has made no new friends. Right. The only way he can possibly win is to maintain the support of everybody who supported him four years ago. And if he's going to lose 9% of them, then he doesn't crack forty-five percent, probably not forty-four percent, and uh, there's no there's no way that he can win. I just just to con- put the final nail in this particular coffin. Uh, there was a there was a study today uh, that showed that if you if you win the national popular vote by five points or more your chances of losing in the electoral college are basically nil. So, you know, if the election were held today. Wait, isn't that one of those po- political science rules that you said don't apply? No, no, no this is not, this, this is not a rule this is, derived. This is this math. Is a rule derived from history. This no, it's is, math. 
this is this is a study this is a study based on the most recent voting trends and that sounds about right to me so mm-hmm. what i take from that is that if the election were held tomorrow trump would lose and it wouldn't be close uh, and so the real the real question analytically is what happens between now and the first week in november to upset the current apple card damon um Biden's been in his basement. Um, he's been doing a podcast that nobody listens to, and um, he hasn't been doing much. Um, now, of course, he's ahead. Um, but do you think it's about time that he did something, anything? I, I actually have come to think that probably not. I actually okay. think that one reason why he's doing as well as he is is that he's reverting to uh, the kind of generic uh, Democrat position. Um, he is a placeholder at this point. He, he is the generic Democrat in the minds of voters. And in the minds of voters, the generic Democrat is more appealing than Donald Trump. And there are things about Biden that could become real liabilities about the way he speaks, the way he uh, seems to reason in response to questions that he can get pretty kind of irritable and defensive in response to the kinds of difficult questions that one would expect in a general election campaign, uh, in, in things like debates, uh, and just general open press avails. So I, I, my instincts are telling me that at least for now, uh, he should pretty much hunker down and stay what he's doing, you know, be in the news on the periphery, do his little podcast with 2000 people listening to it or something. Um, and, but for the most part, he doesn't need anything more. He's, he's in the lead doing what he's doing right now. Now this gets more complicated once we get into the late summer and fall, when traditionally there is an actual campaign going on. <laughs> now, of course, <laughs> we don't know if that will happen because of the, the pandemic and how that will be unfolding uh, six months from now uh, or four months from now. But uh, at the moment, I think uh, the, the evidence is in the polling. He's, he's not really doing very much, and yet he's winning by, you know, uh, as as Bill was saying, the kind of median is around five to six points. So, you know, I, I, I highly doubt he would be doing much better if he were out there all the time doing TV shows and having events and so forth. I, I just want Tim, to go yeah. one step further than Damon. Not only do I disagree with the premise that he should get out of the basement and do more, I, I think that he should go deep into the heart of Africa for the next year and a half months. <laughs> And, and only appear via pictures of him, like building houses for the poor or something, and not actually say anything. I just think that he should keep letting Donald Trump be Donald Trump for a while until he has to. Oh, Linda, you too. You, oh, you were- oh, oh, I just, uh, I actually do think that uh, the fact that he's not out there is not hurting him, uh, maybe helping him. Uh, and so I'd have to agree, but, uh, Africa would not be my first choice. Uh, but, um, you know, I think staying in the basement, keeping the, the most important thing right now for those who want Joe Biden to become president, keep him healthy. Don't expose Mm -hmm. him in ways that might make him sick because that would be a real problem. 
Mm-hmm. Can I briefly just add there that I, I agree with all of that? And I do think that because of his age and the fact that there is a virus around that can be quite deadly for people in his age bracket, I really do think it would be great for him to pick a vice president sooner rather than later. Because once he does that, there is a kind of heir apparent who could take over if things did happen to go bad later. I mean, if, if you know, God forbid something went wrong before that, the, the party would simply melt down. The Bernie people would demand that Sanders should be the nominee. Uh, there'd be a huge fight about that. I just... Um, since he's not doing much else anyway, what, why delay? Is the field of possible Veep candidates, you know, going to change or the opportunities well, going to alter very yeah, much? Are you saying that he should pick his VP now? And if God forbid he were to get the virus, you know, June 10th and die on June 20th, that the VP pick would then become the nominee? I think that, that, it would be an expectation that that person would be the presumptive nominee. I do. Um, huh. I, I mean, that's it's, it, that's what uh, that's what's. Uh, I think that's most likely in my mind. I think the party would have a huge incentive to try to lock it down that way, rather than kind of open it up to a free form uh, scrum in a debate in a, in a convention that might not even take place in the way that one normally takes place. Yeah. Uh, That's that's interesting. Yeah. All right. My view is that if the crazy uncle belongs in the attic, the sane one belongs in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Linda, why don't you start us off on the last segment here? Okay. Um, well, I, yeah, I'm going to point to a story that was in the New York Times um, a, a day or two ago. Ten year old, ten years old, tearful and confused after a sudden deportation. What the story is about is a major shift in U.S. policy on not just immigration but also on asylum seekers. And what has happened is the administration uh, really changing policy that's been, you know, around for both Republican and Democratic administration has been to deport children, unaccompanied minors, um, and to deport them back to their country of, of origin. And apparently, as with so much else in this administration, the incompetence has made this much worse because they're not even notifying their parents. So in the case of this one story, it's about a little 10-year-old boy who ends up back in Honduras, I believe it was, even though um, he was expected to be released to his uncle in the United States. His mother had gotten him there. The mother was not ever notified. The child ended up back with other relatives in an extended family, totally scared, not having any idea what had happened to him. But apparently this is happening to hundreds of children where they are being taken, some of them out of these holding centers, which obviously are dangerous now because of the pandemic. uh, And they're being sent back home to countries themselves that are grappling with the virus. It's just an unprecedented move. It's not gotten a lot of attention it deserves more attention, and it, it just highlights the cavalier attitude, attitude, uh, particularly toward these children that we have 
that has marked this administration from the very beginning. We've gone from caging these kids to putting them on airplanes and sending them back um, sometimes to people who were not even their immediate relatives. So it's a disaster, and I commend people to take a look at it. Wow. Um, Okay. Uh, Bill. Well, I'm going to depart from the beaten track for just a minute and point to something uh, whose significance I think has been underplayed uh, by the press, and that is that Chancellor Merkel without of Germany, without fanfare, uh, you know, uh, reversed one of the pillars of German international economic policy and agreed to a mechanism whereby all the member states of the European Union would share in responsibility uh, for the debt issued by members of the European Union. The, the, you know, the, uh, the technical details are daunting, but what it boils down to is that the Germans have actually learned something from their stubborn failure after the Great Recession uh, to agree to the internationalization of the debt of the major of, of the major nations of of, uh, of the EU. Now, whether this works out well or badly in the long run, I can't tell you. But it is one hundred. It's a hundred and eighty degree U turn from one of the pillars of German policy for decades and. Uh, I, th- I find it quite astonishing and a measure of just how concerned she must be about the fate of Spain and Italy and other countries in deep financial trouble within the EU. It's a remarkably generous gesture. I just worry that it, w- it may mean bad things for Merkel's party. Um, yeah, well, we'll see. Damon. Uh, I just want to add that I agree with Bill that that's a very uh, interesting development. Um, a score one from Macron, who very much wanted that to happen. Uh, so we'll we'll see how that works out. Um, my uh, my um, contribution or suggestion for uh, listeners is a really interesting essay uh, by Francis Fukuyama in the American Interest uh, titled, What Kind of Regime Does China Have? Uh, the uh, subheadline is Xi's totalitarian model has precedence in both modern and ancient Chinese history, but it was not and still isn't inevitable. Um I disagree with a bunch of things in this essay, but it's extremely smart, a great provocation for thinking and trying to wrap our heads around what's going on in China. And uh, it's it's even more pertinent today because uh, one of the big stories of the day is the news that uh, China has moved to impose new Hong Kong security laws that will enable uh, Beijing to control Hong Kong much more uh, strictly than it has and will probably make uh, any relaunching of those uh, democracy protests from uh, several months ago uh, much less likely. So I uh, highly recommended Frank Fukuyama's essay in the American interest. Very sad. By the way, um, 
before all this, the um, the protesters had taken to wearing face masks so that the facial recognition software that's used in all the security cameras wouldn't be able to recognize them. And now it's going to be a little harder for them to insist that they not wear those masks <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Um, okay, Tim. Uh, yeah, I'm going to shout out, uh, there's a reporter who everything he does is good, and he just has another great article this week. His name is Ben Taub, he writes for The New Yorker, and he, he did a long read about um, the five deeps and uh, uh, explorers that, that broke one of the only re- records left to break um, in exploring on Earth and went to the deepest uh, point at all five oceans. It's a fascinating article, and um, you know, while you're there, um, his his previous work, which I which I riffed on for the Bulwark, was just an outrageous, astonishing, enraging story about a guy named Omar Amin, who is a refugee to our country that is essentially being framed by the Iraqi government in in concert with the Trump administration for a terrorist attack that he did not commit in Iraq, and he's being jailed about an hour from me here in California. Um, and uh, it is, it, it's an absolute outrage that it's happening. And so you, you can, by reading Ben Taub, get a little, uh, a little interest in adventure and a little uh, righteous out indignation as well. Good for mm. your weekend. Excellent. Well, um, I wanted to comment that um, it has happened. A, all-out QAnon-supporting candidate, Joe Ray Perkins, has won the Republican nominee, the primary for the Senate race in Oregon. Um, she said, I stand with Q and the team. Uh, thank you, Anons. Thank you, Patriots. Um, for those who are not uh, initiates. <laughs> QAnon is one of the most bizarre conspiracy theories out there. Uh, lots of people show up at Trump rallies with Qs and, uh, you know, big letter Qs. Well, what is, what is the content of this conspiracy? That Trump is engaged in a secret war against a cabal that is made up of pedophile cannibals and the global elite uh, and of course, the Democratic Party and the people who they wait for cues from Q, uh, I guess on a weekly basis, I'm not sure, um, and uh, try to figure things out. And they believe that Trump will soon imprison or execute uh, his enemies in this conspiracy that also includes Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Okay, now, this sort of thing has always been with us, right? I mean, people believe all kinds of crazy stuff. Never did somebody win a Senate race. And she won by 20 points over her nearest competitor. Uh, This, you know, the Republican Party has a decision to make, uh, whether to distance itself from her and decline to support her. But based on what they did with Roy Moore, I'm not, I'm not betting that they will uh, do the right thing. Well, we thank you all for listening. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. And uh, please be sure to rate and review us. You can also comment. Uh, You can find my email on my Twitter feed, on my Twitter identity little page. Uh, We would love to hear from you. We like rates, ratings, and reviews. Of course, positive ones, if you please. And um, we will uh, 
be back here at our at our posts next week. 